From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. On a gorgeous morning 20 years ago, McGee Capsudo of Superior, Colorado, went to a farmer's market in Lower Manhattan. It was this moment of not having any idea what was happening. You know what a plane sounds like. You know when it's way too low and not understanding why those two things were happening. We looked up and we saw the first plane go into the North Tower right over our heads. Capsudo was 11 on 9-11. Then and now she tries to process what happened through music. At the time, it was playing violin on a restaurant table near Ground Zero. This weekend, it's accompanying a church choir in Denver. Requiem for the Living. I'm Joanne Woolley, Director of Legacy Giving. A future gift to Colorado Public Radio through your will or estate is a meaningful way to recognize and sustain an organization that enriches your life and your community. If leaving a gift to CPR is already in your future plans, please let us know. As a fellow Legacy Circle member, it would be my privilege to thank you and hear your story. Learn more at cpr.mylegacygift.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. On September 11, 2001, McGee Capsudo of Superior was 11 years old. She wasn't in Colorado then, but in New York City. She grew up blocks away from the World Trade Center, and her parents owned a neighborhood bistro, Capsudo Frères. The restaurant was kind of like a staple of the neighborhood. Everybody knew it. Everybody went there. And on September 11th, that became just where neighbors went. There was a sense of safety there. The restaurant actually never lost power. So we opened up three meals a day for first responders, neighbors, anybody who needed food, who needed shelter came. It's been 20 years now. The restaurant's since closed. But Capsudo saved a memento from that difficult time, a photograph. It's a little wrinkled, a little smudged, and it shows her on top of a table, head barely clearing a chandelier, playing a violin. In this picture, with the collection of people that was there every day, people who were on the pile working, first responders, there was a sense of hopelessness many days. And an upstairs neighbor knew I played violin and said, I think people would enjoy it. And he threw me up on the table and I played Bach double concerto with my violin teacher who was there that day. And it was a really, really powerful experience because you can talk to people, you know, you can say words to each other, but I think Music really taps into this very primal part of us, and it expresses things that we cannot do in words. And just this sense of connectedness that I had with heroes, you know, people that I looked at and couldn't fathom what they were doing and seeing every day, and I made a difference to them. And that has been extremely powerful. That's really guided my entire life and why I've committed myself to music, and why in any way that I can in my life now, I am promoting music and making sure that those who need it, who want it, can access it. 
Well, to mark two decades since 9-11, McGee Capsudo will perform once again with her violin. Not on a restaurant table this time, but in one of Denver's oldest and grandest venues, Trinity United Methodist Church. She will accompany their choir in a requiem for the living. attended a recent rehearsal ahead of the show's September 11th and 12th. It's one of the first times the choir's gotten together in person since the start of the pandemic. More on the show itself in a bit. First, McGee Capsudo's 9-11 memories. They don't just include the restaurant playing for neighbors and first responders. She was at Ground Zero when the attacks began. I grew up in Lower Manhattan, and my younger brother and I used to be homeschooled. I was a precocious child and didn't do very well in public schools at the time. So September 11th, beautiful morning. My mom, my younger brother, and I were walking a neighbor's dog, and we thought, let's go out to the river. There used to be a really beautiful farmer's market that took place right underneath the World Trade Centers. So we walked all the way down to the end of the island, turned and looked at the buildings, and just kind of marveled in how beautiful the morning was. We made our way to the buildings. My mom was in the farmer's market, and my younger brother, Asa, and I were sitting on the sidewalk, you know, laughing at silly things like you do when you're 11 years old, um, when we heard the plane coming. And it was this moment of not having any idea what was happening. You know what a plane sounds like. You know when it's way too low, and not understanding why those two things were happening. We looked up and we saw the first plane go into the North Tower right over our heads. And just that moment of silence after, you know, your ears are blown out, looking at each other, looking up, not knowing what was happening. So many of us witnessed that event on television and were trying desperately to make out what was happening. And there was all of that speculation about whether it was just a small plane that had gone astray. Did it seem like a big plane when you were that close? Absolutely. You know, we saw it right before it went in, and there was no question about whether it was a prop plane or something small. That was a huge, full-size jet that just disappeared into the building. We saw the wing come out the other side, and um, just chaos that ensued. How quickly were you able to leave the area? Was that a priority at that point? It was certainly a priority. You know, my mom came running out of the market and she grabbed us. It was pandemonium. Everybody running, trying to get away from the building. Nobody had any idea what was going on. She rushed us across the street to One Liberty Plaza and pushed us up against the building, trying to protect us from the debris, from the smoke, everything else that was burning. I mean, it felt like a lifetime standing there. But I guess in actuality, it was only a few minutes. And then we started making our way home, which is about seven blocks north of the trade centers. And it was just a crazy feeling of being in these swarms of people, everybody trying to get away. And I remember just holding on to my brother's hand and pulling him and making sure that we stayed together. We were almost home when we heard the second plane. And it's one of those moments you know, where it's a nightmare and you can't imagine it gets any worse. And then suddenly it's happening again. 
we saw the plane come straight down the river and curved in and heard, you know, the unmistakable sound again of a huge jet hitting a building. From that point, we ran the last couple blocks home. Uh, we were concerned that my dad may have, you know, woken up and gone to see where we were and what was going on. Back in 93, actually, when the towers were first bombed, he decided to go see what was going on. So my mom was definitely a little concerned that that could be a possibility. But we ran up the stairs, were banging on the door, and he was there. He and my mom went up to the roof of our building just to try to make sense of what was going on. And I remember her saying, how are they going to fix that hole? You know, there's massive, massive holes in these buildings. That strikes me as such a, I don't know if I, I should say, hauntingly, beautifully wishful and naive thought now, but so understandable for that moment. I think it was, you know, that sense of hope that maybe, maybe this can be okay. Maybe the damage can be limited. Um, but they came downstairs, had the TV on, and I took my brother. He was only eight years old at the time. And I took him away from the TV and read to him in our room because even as an 11-year-old child, I knew that I wanted to protect him to the best of my ability in this new world where nothing made sense. And we were forced to try to come to terms with what we were seeing. That was so precocious of you. You, you, you mentioned earlier that you were precocious, but the notion of protecting your brother, who's only just a few years younger than you, from the awfulness of what was going on was, was a very mindful act. My brother and I, I say my brother, my younger brother and I, were always very, very close. And I think especially being homeschooled together for as long as we were, you know, we were each other's classmate, lunch buddies. You know, he was and is to this day my best friend. And that's what I thought about that morning. I didn't know what was happening. I was terrified, but it made me feel a sense of groundedness to try to the best of my abilities to provide a sense of comfort for him. I'm picturing your home in New York, which was only seven blocks from the World Trade Center. And I think in any other circumstance, seven blocks might feel like a buffer, but seven blocks seems so close to what was going on. Were you able to stay in your home? No. Within a few minutes of going inside with my brother and reading, Everything started shaking. The lights started flickering. We ran back out to my parents, and they said, we need to leave. And that flickering and shaking was from the South Tower collapsing. So we ran downstairs and started running, you know, just away. Um, my grandmother lived about seven blocks north of us, and we stopped to try to gather her, and everybody flee together. Um, while we were standing outside that building, the North Tower started coming down. And we looked and we saw the cloud completely engulf our building. And I kind of remembered this ridiculous conversation that my brothers and I used to have of, if the World Trade Center fell over, would it hit our house? And like, you know, we're thinking tipping over sideways and we always had very spirited debates about it. And here it was, the World Trade Center collapsing and it hit our house just through debris and dust. Was the home devastated? Was it destroyed? It wasn't destroyed. We couldn't return for about five weeks 
because everything needed to be decontaminated. All of our furniture needed to be thrown out. So I was not home very much, I think maybe one or two times tops between September 11th itself and when we were able to actually return. Because it was covered in debris? Covered in debris and also just what we now know was a copious amount of asbestos. So everything needed to just be decontaminated and deemed safe. Also just the devastation to the infrastructure in the neighborhood with gas lines and electric, kind of rebuilding that aspect of it. You say the building needed to be deemed safe. Have you ever been deemed safe yourself? Do you ever truly feel safe after an experience like that? It's definitely a challenge. You know, there's so much unknown in the world. And for a long time, that was really, really crippling to me, is how do you go on with life knowing that literally in a moment, everything can change. Yes, you can try to protect yourself by limiting your experiences, but ultimately that doesn't do justice to what it means to be alive. And I think that in honoring the lives that were taken that day, kind of the only response is to live your life to the fullest because we have that honor to still be alive. What does this 20th anniversary mean to you? I think in the context of everything that's happened over the past 18 months, um, one of the things that was really the most powerful in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 was seeing the way that people came together. Even when you have no idea what to do, people wanted to support, they wanted to help, and that sense of community really just provided more healing than anything else. And I think in this moment in time, we need that more than ever, not only with the way things have unfolded during the pandemic, but also the situation now in Afghanistan. Um, it's a reminder that we need to be kind to each other and to be respectful of each other. And I hope that we see more of that in the future. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. McGee Capsudo is a violinist who will perform this weekend with the choir at Denver's Trinity United Methodist Church. The show is Requiem for the Living by Dan Forrest. We were at a recent rehearsal. Choir members sang with their masks on, but didn't appear to mind. They seemed to delight at just being together in person and not over video chat. Something I talked to Trinity's music director, Judith Mitchell, about. First, I asked her how this show weaves together the losses of 9-11 and those of the pandemic. Both of these events have not only activated this sense of loss that an individual life has, but it has activated a sense of a collective loss that we're all experiencing together. COVID meant you could not make music for a time. In fact, there's a famous case of a choir in the Northwest where there was essentially a super spreader event. It was one of the defining moments of the pandemic when we understood that the virus was transmitted through the air, through droplets. Talk to me for just a moment about the relationship between COVID and singing, and frankly, your return amidst the Delta variant. How do I talk about 
something that for some people would be like taking away food or taking away that which brings you life. We are, we are singers. We are meant to express through our bodies, and to not be able to do that was a tremendous loss. There was the loss of the community, which is very precious to us here. We work very hard. Our community is all organized around soli deo gloria. That's a term that Bach would write at the end of his compositions, and it simply means, to God alone be the glory. Well, not being able to express that, that took away that channel, not being able to experience our own innate creativity through song meant that we were just, I, I watched people wilt. Um, we tried, we, we carried on through Zoom. We had Zoom rehearsals and it was so aggravating. <laughs> There's just no way to describe making music in your own home when you join a choir because you don't want to sing alone. You want to sing with other people. Are people vaccinated? What, what requirements do you have? I wrestled long and hard with what getting together again might look like. And then with the rise of the Delta variant and began to realize that I had to require vaccinations. I knew that that would mean some people would not or could not participate, but I could not stand in front of this group if I hadn't done everything I could. And we also are wearing masks, and we will probably wear masks at the performance. As you sing? Yes. Have you found that to be an issue in terms of projection? Interestingly enough, it sounds... I don't know if I'm just so starved for, for choral music, if I've lowered my standards or what, but it sounds wonderful. So what is hidden in their mask, they've unmasked with their hearts. It's like their hearts are singing and cannot be stopped. And these, you, they look invincible now when I look out at them. Back to the theme specifically of 9-11, you will be performing Dan Forrest's Requiem for the Living. Just tell me a bit about this piece. This piece is written, as he has said, for the living, which makes it different because a requiem mass is considered a mass for the dead. And what Dan Forrest has done is realize that the people that are living need solace, need release, need comfort, need support. And so it's a work in five movements. We will have a 30-piece orchestra. We will move from a requiem curie to a very sinister, in fact, Dan Forrest has written that in the music notes, with sinister precision. It's called vanitas, looking at the vanity of life. Out of that, we move into an Agnus Day with a boy soprano, and it's written in there um, with renewed hope. And I thought to myself, as only a child can offer to us. Oh. 
The fourth movement is just exquisite. It's called Sanctus, which means holy. And it's a combination of harp and strings. It's just so fulfilling to conduct, for one thing. And then the last movement is Lux Eterna. In other words, the light eternal shine with all of us. And at the concert, 40 minutes will be music. The other 20 minutes will be words from the Quran, words from the Torah, and then from our own Christian Celtic spirituality tradition, there will be words. Then we will have all of us, orchestra, choir, audience, celestial choir, we will all sing together, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. And the night will end with the Adagio for Strings by Samuel Barber. And my voice, I can feel it shaking now as I speak, imagining what this can mean for all of us. Judith Mitchell, Director of Music at Trinity United Methodist Church in Denver. Requiem for the Living, which marks both 9-11 and the ongoing pandemic, takes place the evening of September 11th and the afternoon of the 12th. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a Colorado veteran who survived the attack on the Pentagon. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and KRCC. that you get news that tells you, hey, this is what my elected representative is doing in DC and I needed to know that. Or wow, that's interesting. <laughs> I didn't know that my elected representative was doing this. Public affairs reporter, Caitlin Kim, based in Washington, DC. You send them there to represent your district or the state of Colorado, and ultimately you. What are they doing in your name? I think this is all information you need to know and I hope my reporting helps provide some of that. Listen for the work of the CPR Newsroom every day here on CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. When hijackers flew a plane into the Pentagon 20 years ago, 184 people died. 
Among the survivors was Phil Beaver, back then a lieutenant colonel working at the Defense Department. Today, he teaches at the University of Denver and lives in Englewood. He worries that 9-11 will be forgotten by a younger generation. And here he is in his own words. The morning started typically. I lived about four miles from the metro, so I would run to the metro every morning. I had come into the office, and I was still in my running clothes. hadn't changed into my uniform yet. And I remember Sergeant Major Strickland walking by and saying, okay, Colonel, it's time to probably put a uniform on. And I said, well, come on, Sergeant Major, you know. And, and, and that was the last conversation I had with Sergeant Major Strickland because he was in the outer office on the E-ring, and so he was one of the first people killed. And we also have a report now that it was a plane that crashed into the Pentagon, and we have a large fire at the Pentagon. The Pentagon is being evacuated. I mean, it was obviously a tremendous shock when the explosion happened, and it really felt like it was a bomb. You know, the, the plane hit the outer ring, um, came in through the second floor window, and basically wiped out all of our, our headquarters. General Maud, Sergeant Major Strickland, and all of their staff uh, were killed instantly. For me, the first thing I really saw, it was the fireball coming up between the B and C rings, we could see the huge smoke cloud coming from the E-ring as it worked its way down towards us. And as I talked to people who got out maybe five minutes after I did, they said they couldn't see through the smoke at that point. Um, I will say the smell of jet fuel, it was, it was burning jet fuel, and, and that smell was, was lingered with me for months. So we evacuated to the center courtyard. Pentagon security started pushing us south. They said, okay, get out into the parking lot. It was walking across the parking lot where I had a good friend, Johnny Thomas, standing there frantically dialing a cell phone. And at that point, I realized, yeah, I should probably let my wife, Kim, and my girls know that I was okay. Johnny wasn't able to get any calls out. And so I said, hey, do you mind if I try a call here? And he goes, sure, why not? You know, it's not going to do you any good. And so I dialed the phone. My name is Kim Beaver, and uh, Phil and I got married in 1991. When the phone rang, I was so relieved it was Phil. I mean, it was the briefest and the most welcome phone call ever in my life. I was just, I was so thankful and so relieved that he was okay. It's pretty scary and so unexpected. And I said, it's me, I'm okay. And I knew I didn't have much time, and I didn't. And I started listing all the people in the office who I had seen who were okay. And I said, you know, tell them that, you know, this guy's okay, and this guy's okay, and this guy's okay. And we were cut off after about 10 seconds. You know, and it was obviously a, a tragic day. I knew at that point that a lot of my coworkers had been killed. But um, I was just feeling really fortunate that I wasn't one of them. We did, too. We felt very fortunate that you, you were not hurt and... You came home because um, there were people who didn't make it home. People born today, 20 years afterwards, were born further from 9-11 than I was from World War II. And to me, World War II was ancient history. To me, World War II was something you studied and you talked about. But it wasn't that real for me growing up, even though I did have an uncle who fought in World War II. So I certainly understand and appreciate that people today don't have 
the same cognizance of 9-11 that we do who went through it. Um, I do think it's important that we remember it, though. 9-11's still with us. Obviously, every time you go through an airport, you're reminded of it. Because of 9-11, we've lost a lot of freedoms. And so I, th I think you know, the, the, the reminders will be there uh, forever, but certainly it will be much, much more abstract to people as we go forward. But I still think that it was a defining point that we will have for a long time as this is something that happened to us as Americans and this is something that we need to be aware could happen again. Retired Army Colonel Phil Beaver survived the September 11th attack on the Pentagon. CPR's Corey Jones produced that story. Let's head back to New York City now, where Denver's Lisa Guilford used to live. She's a former Colorado film commissioner. And as she told us a few years back, she was in Greenwich Village on 9-11, working on a television project. We were all out. When I say all, there's a bunch of people in New York City in Greenwich Village who went out every morning and walked their dogs. Including you and your dog. My big dog, Leaf, and Leaf is a search and rescue, but he did water rescue, just as a hobby here in Colorado. So there we were in New York, and I was walking with some chums down the West Side Highway. It was a beautiful walk. So I said, let's walk down to the World Trade Center, because the Orchid Show had just closed on Sunday, and I had been there in their gorgeous glass atrium of the World Trade Center. It was the sky was so blue and crisp, and we heard a buzzing, and we looked up, and we saw a plane. And from where we were standing, it looked like a private plane, like a trick plane. I can't explain it to you. It was so far up. So I immediately called on my cell phone my husband in Denver, and of course I woke him up because it was like six. 20 or whatever. And I said, oh my God, Jim, there is a plane that is trying to do a trick between the towers. as some kind of stunt. And as I was on the phone with him, it crashed. It hit the building. I screamed, oh my God, it hit the building. And nobody moved. We all just stood there like our feet were in cement. And within maybe three seconds, we heard the first siren, and things started falling out of the sky, like little pieces of cinder. And all of a sudden, the 6th Precinct, that's the t-shirt I'm wearing, the 6th Precinct, which was the Greenwich Village Police Precinct, they came up, and everybody knows everybody in Greenwich Village who lives there. It's a village. And I'd grown up there. And they came up to me and they said, Lisa, stand back, stand back. And so we all kind of moved back. And they looked at Leaf, my dog. And they said, oh, Leaf does search and rescue. And I said, yes. And I'll never forget this. This was like 10 minutes after it happened. One of the cops said to me, does he do cadaver work? And I said, no, only live scent. And they said, okay, I don't think we'll be needing him, is what the cop said to me. Guilford remembers the shock of a second plane hitting. And there's an image a short time later she'll never forget. I said to 
the people I was working with, oh, look, they're surrendering, they're throwing napkins, white napkins, out the windows, and it was very, very high. And somebody said, those aren't napkins. They were people. And that really got me. We all were in shock, and we started walking, and we found ourselves in a group of people. Some had torn stockings. Some of the gals had torn stockings, and they were just leaving, walking up the West Side Highway. There was, you know, tons of people walking, and Giuliani had, at that point, closed everything down. No subways, no buses. You were literally on an island. And these people had to walk home to New Jersey, but we stood there offering water, bathrooms if they needed them, anything we could. And we, it was very confused, but in an orderly way, if that's possible. It was very quiet. Everybody was very quiet. And we still didn't know that it was a terrorist attack. We thought it was some horrible accident. By 4 o'clock that afternoon, a bunch of us from the village where we lived, we made this big sign that said, thank you. Because by that point, the streams of fire trucks and emergency vehicles, the cacophony of sounds was just amazing. And we went out across from my building on West 11th and stood on the Hudson River side, and we held up this sign, thank you. Before nightfall, we all were settling into, what did you hear? What did you hear? And people just were going to first responders or whatever. And they said, you have to stay where you are. And there was food in the grocery stores at that point. We had electricity. And so we thought, okay, well, we'll stay here for a day or two. Well, the day or two turned out to be, I think, two weeks. So by the third or fourth day... There are a lot of restaurants in Greenwich Village. And by the third day, there was no food. And more importantly, there was no New York Times. And so we would designate people we didn't even know. We would give them $2 to go up to 23rd Street and stand online to get a newspaper. And if you wanted to leave the district, the lockdown, you had to have your ID with you or a bill that said you lived below. So we were really isolated. And it was interesting because by then the restaurants had signs out. Um, we don't have much, but whatever we have, you can have. And people were just going into restaurants and nobody was really hungry. They just wanted to talk. It was, they became meeting places. Three weeks later, we were just coming out of lockdown, and the sky was smoky, and there was a sweet kind of acrid smell. It wasn't a terrible smell. It didn't hurt your eyes. It was just a smell. And in the elevator, I ran into an old man, and this guy said, I know that smell very well. And I said, really, what is it? And he said, it's a smell from my childhood. And he rolled up his arm and showed me his Auschwitz prisoner number. For the next, I guess, three months, CNN was really our only 
immediate, instantaneous information, and I left the TV on. I just left it on, and I don't know why. It was just, I had to leave something on, and to this day, I sleep with the TV on. It's not comforting, certainly not now. Wallowing in bad news, how could that be a comfort? But I just started sleeping with the TV on. Lisa Guilford of Denver sharing her 9-11 memories back in 2018 with us. Just some of the Coloradans we've spoken with in the 20 years since. When the Twin Towers fell 20 years ago, Mirwais Hotak was 11 years old. His family had fled the Taliban in their native Afghanistan, resettling in Pakistan. But September 11th and its aftermath was the start of an odyssey for Hotak, one that led him back to Afghanistan and eventually to Colorado. CPR's Andrea Dukakis reports. He was just a kid on 9-11, but Mirwais Hotek remembers the fears and rumors he heard from the adults around him. So people were just, you know, in, in shock. And their fear was, OK, what is going to happen next? They quickly found out what was going to happen in late 2001, when the U.S. did invade Afghanistan. By then, Hotek says, for many, fear turned to hope. Afghans got rid of a regime, a cruel regime that they did not want, they did not like. People started to live again. People were happy because they were seeing a future. He said money from the U.S. and abroad meant roads were built. Health care improved. Women could go back to work and to school. His family returned to Afghanistan, he says, to help rebuild the country. At 18, Hotek got a job working as an interpreter for Americans. He eventually started translating conversations between Afghan officials and U.S. military officers. It was a consistent paycheck in a country that still lacked jobs, but he risked retribution from the Taliban, so he left his house every day and pretended he was going to school. I had my backpack telling all my neighbors and friends that, hey, I go to school. I go to college. So that's how I, you know, shelter myself. But slowly, Hotek says, people started figuring it out. My worry was that they would kill my family. They would kill me. That's what they were doing. You know, they could target us easily, you know, riding on a motorbike while go to your job or somewhere. They kill a lot of people. Eventually, Hotek applied for a visa to go to the U.S. He came to Colorado, worked at DIA at first, and in January of this year opened an Afghan restaurant in the food court of the Southwest Plaza Mall in Littleton. That's where he shared his story with me. He says business is slow, but he's making ends meet. His biggest worry is still his family back in Afghanistan. When the U.S. pulled out and the Taliban took over in mid-August, he found a house where his parents could go into hiding, at least until things settle down. He says being far away is painful. I'm here, you know, I see a peaceful environment here. I I can only imagine. They are stuck there. There's no, you know, no schools right now. There's no government right now. No one is going anywhere. It makes Hotak reflect on the past 20 years, whether all that money from foreign governments, all that work to rebuild, all those risks were worth it. We took one step forward and five steps backward. I was there for almost, let's say, 10 years. 
risked my life and at the end of the day, nothing. That doesn't mean Hotek has resigned himself to more conflict in his native country. People are going out in streets and roads and asking for their basic rights, especially women, and media is still there. But time is going to judge what is going to happen. If Taliban want to rule the country, they have to listen to people. So Hotek refuses to give up hope, even after a lifetime of war. Andrea Dukakis, CPR News. Colorado firefighters will climb the stairs of a Denver skyscraper on 9-11 to honor their fallen colleagues, 55 stories in full gear twice to equal the 110 stories of the World Trade Center. 343 people will make the climb. That's the number of firefighters who died in New York City on 9-11. The climb's meant to make you remember some of the efforts that they went through. It's a way to physically represent and uphold how we say never to forget. You know, the further we get away from the events of September 11th, the more it's important to share the stories of what those guys did on that day and to share the stories of the sacrifice their families have made since then. So that is Oren Bersagel Breeze of the Castle Rock Fire and Rescue Department ahead of this year's climb. He is one of the event's founders, and I first met him a decade ago on the 10th anniversary. Let's listen back. Tell me what it feels like when you're doing this. Are you quiet? Are you talking? Is it hard? Yeah, all of the above. <laughs> um, we uh, it, There's a lot of quiet time. You just hear that, like, tromping of steps and boots on steps, and the, the stairs are... They're metal stairs, and it's a concrete stairwell. So it's it's a really enclosed, loud... Echoey. Echoey place. And you can hear people several floors above and below you when you're climbing. There's something both poetic and kind of ominous about that, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, sure enough. Yeah. And, you know, while you're climbing, there's no way that we could ever know what those guys felt, saw, experienced. But you think about kind of what it would be like and the effort that they must have gone through to have to do all that stuff and then to think about once they reached the floors, then they had to go to work, you know, and and just seeing all the other people coming down the stairs, we don't experience any of that. So it's just us in the stairwell. Because on September 11th, 2001, there would have been people... Tens of thousands. ...pouring out of the building as the firefighters were walking up. Exactly. You know, you get through the first... I don't know, 20, 30 floors, and and you're doing okay because we climb in full gear um, with hose packs and SCBA and all that kind of stuff, which can weigh in excess of 100 pounds. SCBA, the breathing apparatus. The breathing apparatus, correct. And it's really hard and really hot and and really uncomfortable. And so it goes from being quiet to, you know, the, the talking that starts is encouraging each other to get through the tough parts and then hey, don't don't forget about what those guys did and, and the effort that they put forth. Who will you be climbing for? And does that change from year to year? Yes, it changes from year to year. Each climber is given a picture and and the name of one of the firefighters. We hand them out randomly. Is it that um, day or do you yeah, have some... Yeah, as, as they start their first trip up the stairs. Oh, we wow. hand, them, hand them out a picture and then, and then they climb with them. I climb, have climbed in memory of Chief Ray Downey, who was a special operations chief at the time. Special operations units do like collapse rescue and water rescue, trench rescue, all, all that type of stuff. 
And and after you're assigned this person and you've done the climb, are are people kind of interested in looking the person up, seeing who who this was? Yeah, it's something that we started a couple of years ago. We reached out to the climbers and we say, hey, we really want you to, to find the families, to make some sort of connection, which is difficult. There's some families that don't want to be reached and there's other ones that are a little bit more receptive and that's all completely understandable. And and so we give them a couple of resources online to turn to and ask them to go and, and if nothing else, leave a message somewhere that says, hey, my name is so-and-so, I climbed in memory of your loved one and we don't forget. We, we remember the sacrifice that not only he made but that you guys have made as well. Well, have relationships developed? Yeah, some relationships have developed. I was just talking to somebody last night, as a matter of fact, who's reached out to a family and and they've exchanged photos and stories and, you know, about their own personal lives and stuff. And it's actually one of the most rewarding aspects of this. I mean, certainly there's the there's the gratification that we all receive individually when we complete a climb like this, but it pales in comparison to the gratification you receive when you let somebody else know, you know, we haven't forgotten. So you you have climbed in the past for it. Was it Chief Downey? Chief Ray Downey. Ray Downey. And have you been able to have any contact with, with his? I've had some contact with his family, his wife and his son. It's been minimal contact, and, and that's completely fine. They they know what we've done and that I've climbed in his memory, and, and that's good enough for me. You carry photos of the firefighter for whom you're climbing. Mm-hmm. And uh, what do you do with that photo? Do you look at it occasionally when you're climbing the stairs? Yeah, when you're climbing the stairs... It comes in handy to look at when you need that little extra bit of motivation. I know most of the guys, if not all of them, keep the photos and they'll carry them with them in their bunker gear just on the fire trucks when they go back to to work or when they volunteer. Uh, I keep mine with me all the time. Even though you may never have met that person, you kind of establish a connection. How did this idea first come about? Well, there was five of us, even a slightly larger group than that, that were meeting every month up in Denver, a group of Denver firefighters and Castle Rock firefighters. And we were just meeting on the first Saturday of every month to climb stairs. And what we were doing that for was PT, physical training, and just some camaraderie. So then when September of 2005 rolled around, um, we said, hey, wait a minute, the, the 11th is pretty close to this first Saturday thing, so let's move it over to the 11th and climb 110 flights and when we were climbing, we were sort of realizing what we were doing and what we were climbing for. Then we just realized when we finished it, we were like, man, we need to do some of this and we need to take it bigger. And it, and you did, and it has grown. How did this spread so far? A couple of years ago, uh, the National Fallen Firefighter Foundation came to us and said, essentially, we really like what you guys did here. Is there a way that we can do more with this and take it nationally? And one of the things that's come up since then, so there was a 343 firefighters that were killed on the 11th itself. And all the people, the thousands of responders and, and FDNY members that worked down there in the recovery efforts and the rescue efforts and for weeks and months and months at Ground Zero are now dealing with all these 9-11 related diseases. Lung issues, breathing problems. Cancers. Cancers. All, respiratory issues, all that kind of stuff. There's going to be, when this is all said and done, a lot more people that are going to die because of what happened on September 11th than what actually occurred that day. Uh, And one of our focuses was to see if there was a way that we could continue to support those people because, as we all know, the event happens, we think about it, we remember it, but we kind of walk away from it after that. And that's one of the things that we don't want to do is walk away from it. And all these guys are making 
maybe not the exact same, but a similar sacrifice. And so all the money that we're able to raise is going to go towards the Fallen Firefighter Foundation and their efforts to support those families in the future. Oren, thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely. Oren Bersagel Breeze of the Castle Rock Fire and Rescue Department, speaking with me on the 10th anniversary of 9 11. He co founded the Denver 9 11 Memorial Stair Climb. The 20th anniversary event takes place Saturday. is Colorado Matters for today with gratitude for our team. Carl Bielek, Ali Butner, Anthony Cotton, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Morner. Thanks for spending time with us. You're with CPR News and KRCC.